The scripture reading today is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, which can be found on page 1021 in your pew Bible. Now please stand for the reading of God's word. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. Amen. First Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Go ahead and find your Bibles and uh, make your way back to 1 John chapter 2. And let's pray together. Lord, there are so many things that we sing about in our lives or sing along to in our cars. But there's one ultimate treasure worth singing for, and that is you. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would receive our praise and receive our love even as we turn our hearts to listening to you and your word. May we listen with love. May we listen with hearts that are uh, eager to recognize that it's your voice speaking in your word. Hearts that want to be changed and transformed by your word. And so we pray that your spirit would give us ears, Lord, to, uh, to hear you and hearts to love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. They say that some people are beach people and some people are mountain people when it comes to vacations. Uh, both my wife and I are definitely in the mountain category. Uh, beach is fine for a day. It's fun. Uh, but if we're going to vacation... We want the mountains. It's just how we roll. And so one of our favorite things to do during the summer is to haul our family up to the White Mountains in New Hampshire and and then tool around, do a little hiking and so on. Uh, But when we're hiking with our children, uh, I have to confess that for as much as I love the mountains, I can be a bit of a wreck when I'm actually out there in them with my kids, Uh, partly because I don't like heights. And uh, they're beautiful. I don't. I, I, I don't. Sorry. And though, you know, coming from the Midwest where, you know, the closest mountain was 10 hours away in Colorado, the White Mountains are not exactly the Rocky Mountains. Uh, but there are still plenty of places where I can envision my kids falling to their death. And I don't like that picture or that idea. And so I just kind of spend my whole time warning them what not to do. You know, stay away from the edge, stay on the trail, don't wander too far ahead, don't run off. 
And as my wife can attest, uh, that can feel a bit overwhelming, overbearing uh, on my kids at times. Um, you know, you think about it, if all you ever hear, if all I ever say while we're out uh, hiking is, you know, watch out, be careful, stop doing that, after a while it kind of just sucks the fun and joy out of the whole experience. Uh, they can even begin to feel like they're being accused for something that they haven't even done. Uh, like, Dad, why do you keep telling me to stay away from the edge? I haven't been anywhere near, and if I tried, you wouldn't let me anyway. So why, you know, why are you riding me? So my care for their safety can become overbearing and discouraging. And so if I'm doing my job as a father, I can't stop warning them. That would be foolish. But I need to couple my exhortations with some encouragement. So not only to warn them, but also to commend them. You guys are doing an amazing job. This is so much fun. I love you. I'm so glad you're my kids. Joshua and Mariah, you guys know what you're doing. You've done this before. You're doing great. You're using your head. Keep it up. You know, Chloe and Eva, you little girls are strong. You've come so far already. You've done such a good job. I need to not only warn, but also encourage. And when we come to 1 John 2, that's basically what John is doing in this section that we have before us this morning. For much of the book so far, he has been offering strong warnings to the church he's writing to. Uh, because the church that he's writing to was in dangerous territory. There were some who were trying to lead them away from Christ to... Uh, tell them and convince them that they could know God without worrying so much about sin, or certainly without believing in a sin-bearing Savior like Jesus. So this church was in dangerous territory. It was literally eternal life and eternal death. And so John is is a bit like Mad-Eye Moody. He's writing with constant vigilance. He's always keeping uh, an eye out for danger, warning and admonishing the church at every step as he kind of points the way forward. And our passage this morning, in fact, contains another strong warning, uh, another precipice that he wants them to be mindful of, the danger of pursuing worldly pleasure instead of God and his kingdom. But before he goes there, that's verses 15 to 17, before he goes there, lest his readers be completely overwhelmed uh, by his vigilance, or even frustrated as though he's accusing them of something they haven't even done. Right now, they're still on the path, walking well. Uh, so before he goes there, John pauses for a moment to offer some words of encouragement to the church in verses 12 to 14. I'm not writing to you because you've gone astray or you're constantly messing up. I'm writing to you because you belong to God, not to these false teachers, because you're doing a good job following him, and because I don't want anything to ruin that, not even this love for the fallen world that he's going to talk about. And so words of encouragement and words of exhortation in their pursuit of God. And we'll look first at the words of encouragement in verses 12 to 14. Now, you, I'm sure, noticed some repetition when Paul read them earlier. Uh, these verses are honestly some of the most confusing lines in the book. Uh, not because the words he uses are hard to understand, but because it's not immediately clear who he's talking to 
when he addresses them. Uh, you'll notice, uh, again, first the structure and the repetition. So he seems to be talking to three different groups here, uh, children, fathers, and young men, and he addresses both of those groups twice. He says something different to the children the second time. He repeats himself to the fathers, and then he kind of elaborates on what he says to the young men on the second go-around. So it's all rather poetic and kind of strange. Like, what what is he doing here? What are these words about? Uh, is he talking to more than one group of people? And if so, is he kind of distinguishing them by age? So the, the older members of the congregation and the younger and, and so on. Or is he kind of using these titles metaphorically, speaking of different levels of spiritual maturity rather than age? Or is he talking to one group and using three different metaphors to describe them? Uh, if you do some reading on these passages, you'll find people suggesting all of those answers. Um, and why does he repeat himself? Did he kind of write a first draft and then forget to delete it when he wrote a second draft? And so we've got both copies in there. Uh, what is John doing here? Well, I'm not claiming to solve all of it or anything, but I think we can begin to wrap our heads around these verses if we think again of, a, of the hiking illustration. So picture a father leading his children on a trek through the mountains, encouraging them as they go. When he addresses them as children, he speaks to all of them. They're all his children that are with him. But some of them are older and more skilled in the hike, so like Joshua and Moriah. And some of them are younger and a little more energetic, but also have to work harder for each victory, like even Chloe. And so it would be kind of something like this. I'm telling you, children, that you're all part of the family and on the right path. Some of you know exactly what you're doing. Some of you are learning and have already overcome some obstacles. Uh, I told you, you're on the right path. You guys over there, you know what you're doing. You guys over there, you're strong. You're working hard. You've already overcome an obstacle. So he's repeating himself, encouraging them as they go, speaking to all of his children, but then distinguishing within them between those who are spiritually mature and those who are younger. And there are two reasons that I think that when he calls them children, he's speaking to all of his readers. Uh, first, he calls them children throughout the book. This is his main way of referring to the people he's writing to. So if you just look back to chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, that's the same word as in verse 12 here in this section. And, you know, several other places in the book. And then if you look ahead at verse 18, where he says, children, that's the same word as in verse 14. And so it would be strange if he was using these words to speak only to part of the community when throughout the rest of the book he uses those words to address all of them. And so so that's the first reason. And then the second is that what he says about and to these children is true of all believers. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know the Father. So he's affirming the faith of the congregation that he's writing to. Uh, he's been so adamant about warning them to stay on the path that he takes a minute to thank them and remind them and encourage them that they really are on it. Uh, one author explains it by addressing them as those whose sins have been forgiven and those who know the Father. He's in effect affirming that they are a people who are walking in the light. 
who are keeping God's commands, who practice love for fellow believers, which is elsewhere in the letter, the marks of those who truly knew God. So he's encouraging the community. But then he gets more specific in that encouragement. Among the children, those there are some who are more mature and skilled in the faith. And these he refers to with the metaphor of fathers in verses 13 and 14, affirming that they are those who know him who is from the beginning. So, so these are the believers, uh, both men and women. When he says fathers here, that's a representative language. He's not trying to be gender specific. Um, they're men and women who are believers in the Lord, who are stable in the faith. They're convinced of the gospel that they heard. They are setting an example of steadfastness and loyalty to the Lord. They're the pace setters, if you will. Um, and, and so he has confidence in them as he writes, and he encourages them that way. But then he commends a second group whom he calls young men. Again, talking to both men and women, those who are younger in the faith. And the main thing that he encourages them in, in both, uh, both versions of his commendation, is that they have overcome the evil one. That, that they, too, are on the right path. They have overcome the evil one, which in the, in the context of 1 John almost certainly means that they have overcome him by trusting Christ and not being dissuaded by the false teachers. And that's a massive victory. They're on the path. They have overcome him. And then he elaborates on it the second time around, telling him that you are strong and, and that strength comes from abiding in God's word and you have overcome the evil one. Be encouraged. Keep walking. Keep depending on the Lord. And so John takes a minute to tell the church, I'm not writing to you because you've blown it and because you're a disaster and you're a mess and you've completely you know, messed up. I'm writing to you because you belong to God, not to these false teachers, because you're doing a great job, you're on the path, and because I don't want anything to ruin that. Because the reality is they are not yet out of harm's way, this church. And neither are we when it comes down to it. Not until the Lord returns. And so John continues in his letter, moving from encouragement to exhortation. Uh, so look at verses 15 to 17 with me, which uh, give us a warning against worldliness. Verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So among the threats that are facing uh, a young church seeking to follow Christ and grow in intimacy with God, perhaps one of the gravest threats to living out their days in a fallen world is the temptation to love this world instead of God. Or in a, in a word, worldliness. To be worldly. To slip into that trap. So what does John mean when he talks about the world here? Uh, do not love the world or anything in the world. If you go to John 3.16, he says the exact opposite, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. And so what does John mean here? Well, if you kind of read throughout the Gospel of John and through his letters here, uh, you'll notice that John uses that word world in several different ways. Um, sometimes he's simply talking about the place where we live, the world. Uh, sometimes he's talking about the inhabitants of this world. Uh, 
For instance, John 3.16, for God so loved the world is to say that God so loved the people who live in this world and on this world. Um, but then sometimes when John uses this word, he's talking about the world in its fallen state. So the world in its opposition to God and his kingdom. Worldly attitudes and values that are opposed to God. Uh, C.J. Mahaney, a, a pastor and an author, has written a book on worldliness. It's very good, uh, very short. But he explains that the world we're not to love is the organized system of human civilization that is actively hostile to God and alienated from God. So it's humanity at enmity with God, a world of arrogant, self-sufficient people seeking to exist apart from God and living in opposition to God. It's a world richly deserving of the righteous wrath of a holy God, dead set against the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the world that we're forbidden to love. And so worldliness, then, is a love for this fallen world, a love for things that uh, the, a world that has been corrupted by sin and that makes false promises that it can never deliver on. What does that look like practically speaking, though? Um, be interesting to take a poll. I'm sure we would all have slightly different definitions of what does it mean to be worldly and, and what it doesn't. Uh, does this mean that Christians should avoid using playing cards and dancing? You know, were our grandparents right all along that we should not do those things? Or uh, that our kids should only play educational video games. Is it worldly to do otherwise? Or, or does it mean that we should avoid R-rated movies? Is it okay if we fast forward through the violence or the sex scenes or something like that? Can we still watch it? What, what does it mean to, to not be worldly? Um, I mean, people have debated the outward standards of this for years. But Mahaney reminds us that worldliness, as John defines it here, does not consist in outward behavior, though our actions can certainly be evidence of worldliness within. But the real location of worldliness is internal. It resides in our hearts. And that's what we see as John kind of explains what's wrong with loving the world. The fact that world love for the world is incompatible with love for God. Love for this fallen world. According to John, you cannot love God and this fallen world at the same time. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father or love for the Father is not in him. And so to go back to the hiking illustration, you cannot walk a godly path and a worldly path at the same time. It's impossible. They're incompatible. And he gives us two reasons for this. The first is in verse 16 where he shows us that the passions and values that drive this fallen world and those that are godly or Godward have a different starting point, a different trailhead. They come from two different sources. So verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Two different starting points. And here you see really the kind of that internal nature of worldliness. It affects our outward behavior, and there are certainly sinful outward behaviors. 
But worldliness, a love for the world, resides in our hearts. And he describes that in three ways here. First, he talks about the desires of the flesh. So another way to put that, sinful cravings, fleshly desires, longings for things in this fallen world, not because they honor God or help people, but because we think they will make us happy. Sinful cravings, looking for life in what this world, apart from God, has to offer. You know, it's, it's the functional idols that we wrestle against daily. Money, uh, power, sex, fame, knowledge, all of these things that we can find our identity and our value and our security in apart from God. So sinful cravings, the desires of the flesh, and these cravings are fueled and stimulated through what we see, which is the second thing that John points us to, the desires of the eyes. What we see, you know, marketers figured this out a long time ago. We're bombarded with images everywhere we go. And those images, by and large, are meant to do one thing. Create a desire that can be turned into a profit. That's how marketing works. To show us something in order to convince us that we need it so that we will spend money to have it. Because if you have it, then you can boast in it. You can be fulfilled and happy and satisfied. That's the line we're told. And that's the third way that worldliness works in our hearts. Pride in possessions or pride of life. Boasting in our stuff, in what we have, as though that defines us or gives us identity. Of course, the obvious problem with all of these things uh, is that none of it will fulfill We know this from experience. We know it from watching other people that that this world cannot deliver on its promises. Uh, The things that we look for in this fallen world will never satisfy and they will never last. One recent sociologist um, uh, found in his research that, quote, the incredible rise in living standards for the majority of the Americans and Western Europeans has made them more affluent, healthier, more comfortable, more free, and sovereign over ever taller piles of stuff, but has not made them any happier. Think about that. For all of the advancements, for all of the accumulation, people are not happier, sociologically speaking. Because the deeper problem with that The reason that none of it actually satisfies is that none of this comes from God. None of these passions and desires that we think will satisfy actually come from God. They begin from a completely different trailhead. As Mahaney puts it, it's an attempt to, quote, gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. That's what we're trying to do when we're trying to find our life in what this fallen world can give us. We're trying to gratify and exalt ourselves to the exclusion of God. And in order to do that, we reject God's rules and replace it with our own. We exalt our opinions above God's truth, elevate our sinful desires for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. We put ourselves in his place. If you had to boil it down to one summary of what worldliness is, Assuming and acting as though we're actually in charge of this world. 
That's what it is. Uh, worldliness, it's like life is a choose-your-own-adventure book where, where each of us ha- have the uh, key to sovereignly chart our own course to happiness and fulfillment. Uh, and, and if you think about it, that's exactly the kind of attitude that this world celebrates, right? You know, follow your heart. Pretty much every greeting card or something like that. Uh, you do you. But to suggest that real happiness and significance comes not from self-expression, but from self-denial, that's just weird. That's, that's strange and oppressive. But that's what worldliness does. David Wells has said that worldliness is that system of values in any given age which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seems strange. Think about that. It's that, that worldview, that attitude that makes sin look normal and righteousness seems strange. It's pretty influential. But again, we're reminded, uh, do not love the world is not an outdated command or a remnant of a, an overscrupulous legalistic tradition it is god's word to us it comes straight from a loving heavenly father to you and me and therefore it demands our urgent attention do not love the world that's god's word to us so you cannot fulfill or find life in this fallen world and in god at the same time they have two different trailheads they form two incompatible paths. If you love the world in its fallen state, doesn't mean you can't enjoy things God gives you. But if you worship those things, if you find your identity and love in those things, the love of God is not in you. You're loving something else instead of Him. So that's the first reason that, that loving God and loving the world is incompatible. Two different trailheads, two different sources. The second reason that John gives us is that they have they lead to two different destinations uh, in the end. So verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's only one trail that's going to bring you to the top of the mountain. The other one will disappear before you get there and leave you at a dead end. Uh, I remember hiking in Colorado several years ago. Um, I think it was 2000 or something like that. I was there with a few friends, uh, visiting some friends in Colorado Springs, and we had an afternoon. And so there was this short little day hike right next to where we were at. So we decided, hey, let's let's go up to the top of that mountain. I've been there a few weeks earlier, and I'd done the hike. I pretty well knew where we were going. But partway up the trail, we came to this new fork in the road where the trail we had taken the last time had been blocked off and there was a new trail that had been carved with a new sign saying, you know, trailhead this way or trail this way. And so we decided, I guess there's a new trail. Must be a a new and better way up to the top. So we took the new trail. Only to find 15 minutes later, we came to a spot where another sign said temporary end of trail. That's the disappointing experience. 
that people are going to have if they choose the path of the world instead of the path of God. It will, the path is disappearing and it will lead to a dead end. And the result will be more than disappointment. It will mean ruin and devastation. To reject God in this life means losing him for all eternity. We've got to understand that. There is no future for this fallen world or for those who find their life in it. It is already passing away. And when Christ returns, everything that we thought would give us life and hope and, and, and power in this world, everything we thought would make our lives worth something or bring us happiness or joy or, or at least be our monument for later generations, all of it will be burned up and replaced with a new creation where sin has been abolished and righteousness dwells forever in the presence of God. That is the hope of eternity. And that only comes through abiding in Christ. The one who does the will of the Lord will abide forever. That's the alternative path. That's the one that actually gets you to the top. Death will have no power over this one. No charge of the devil will be able to stand against this one. He will be saved from the fire and eternally satisfied in what actually lasts in God himself. That is the promise for those who abide in God, those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. Those who do the will of the Lord, as John puts it here. And what that means in the immediate context is avoiding worldliness, not doing verse 16, not trusting in the things of this world, but instead in the things of God. And in the broader context of 1 John, it simply means abiding in Christ. That's God's will for us. That we would put our hope in the Lord Jesus, that we would obey Him out of joyful love, not legalistically to win His affection, but because He's placed His affection on us through the cross, and we receive that through faith, to obey Him out of that love and to show that love tangibly in obedience and in love for the body, which, again, is basically brings us back to the message of the whole book of 1 John, what it means to abide in Christ, to have intimate communion with our God. We must first hope in Christ. And if you think about it, you know, here's one who was tempted, just like we are, in every way, yet was without sin, who said no to the temptations of this world. You think of what, what the devil offered Christ in, in that temptation in Matthew 4. Here's all the kingdoms of the world, and I will give it to you if you will bow down and worship me. And that really is the temptation that we're faced with daily when the world comes to us and says, you can have it all. All you got to do is worship me. But Jesus said no to that temptation. And I think that was the hardest temptation of the three in that story to say no to because that meant he was committing himself to going to the cross in order to receive his kingdom. He could have had a kingdom without a cross. All he would have had to do is worship Satan. And that's what we look for every time we're tempted, a kingdom without a cross, a kingdom without a Christ. But God calls us to follow Christ. He is our advocate 
who died in our place for all of our sin, and he is our example who shows us what it looks like to honor the Lord with our lives, to say no to sin and yes to Christ. So how do we move forward wherever we are in that path? Some of us this morning need to hear John's words of encouragement and actually believe them. For some of us, it's not that we don't want to walk with God. We do want to walk with God. We love God and we're frustrated with this fallen world. But we're also frustrated with the sway that it still seems to have over us. And we feel guilty when we let God down. Like he's wasted his blood on us. And we wonder when he's finally just going to throw up his hands and be, I've done everything I can with that one. And we're just waiting for the shoe to fall. But if Christ is your king, if you have believed on him and if you are cleansed by his blood, then yes, be frustrated when you sin. But don't forget that your sin has already been paid for. Even the sin you commit today and the sin you'll commit tomorrow, the sin of the entire world was poured out on Christ in our place. And because of that, you are a child of God. If he is your king, you are strong. You have overcome the evil one. The fact that you believe in Christ means you're on the right path and you have overcome the evil one already. You are strong. God is not going to lose this battle and he's certainly not going to lose you. Some of us need to hear those words of encouragement and actually believe them that God is talking to me in my discouragement. That his, his love and his grace are for me. And some of us this morning need to hear John's warning and heed it. Some of us have become convinced by the world's logic, or at least we're, we're pretty persuaded Righteousness really does seem strange and sin seems pretty normal. So what's the big deal? Some of us are so deeply invested in what this world can give us that we have little time for God or anyone else. And some of us simply don't want to give up what we know or fear God will ask us to give up if we actually follow him. Some of us want the best of both worlds. We want our best earthly life now, our best worldly life now, and our best heavenly life later. But it doesn't work that way. The ways of this world and the ways of God are incompatible. They come from two different places. They take you to two different places. So we need to hear John's warning. We need to hear Jesus' warning that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and power, or God and career, or God and fill in the blank. All of us, wherever we are on that path, all of us need to continue to hold fast to Christ. This world is passing away. It has nothing to offer you. Nothing that will last. 
So love what lasts instead. Put your love on God and use whatever time He gives you to make a difference for Christ in this fallen world rather than using this fallen world for yourself. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you know our hearts. Lord, you know the temptations we feel. You know the questions we ask. You know the doubts that we have. You know the things that we secretly find pleasure in. And you know the longings of our heart that are frustrated with those things and that want you instead. You know us because we are your children. We are your creation. And for those who belong to you, we are your children. And so God, would you do your work in our hearts? Would you encourage us where we need encouragement? To remind us that your love and your grace are for us. That there's nothing we did to earn your mercy in the first place. There's nothing we can do to earn it in the midst of our sin. We trust. We trust you. We depend on you. We rest in you. And Lord, in that trust and dependence, may we see that what you offer is so much better than the stuff of this world. And Lord, sometimes we're not convinced of that. Sometimes we think we know better than you. But we confess that we need your spirit to to change the way that we see this world, to change the way we see things, that the, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, that, that we would not see that in the way this world presents it to us as the answer, but that we would see it the way you describe it is that which is passing away and can never satisfy. But thank you that Jesus is so much better than that. And God, would you reconvince our hearts of that daily. Thank you that in him is a love that will always last and that will never let us down. And you have proven it by going to the ultimate end of your death and resurrection in our place. Lord, fill our hearts that we would abide with you and follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.